Being Reasonable, now heard on WHUP LP Hillsborough, WCOM Carborough and WPVM Asheville. Being Reasonable comes to you from the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsborough, North Carolina. Fasten your I'm Mark Solomon, and you are taking part in Being Reasonable, the weekly conversation show that focuses on how we've arrived on our steadfast views and our desire to know what is true. To participate in this friendly collaboration, all you need is respectfulness and an honest interest in the truth. We can all improve the way we form and consider our beliefs, and we can do so by being reasonable. One, two. On this week's show, we speak with Father Peter Tremblay, Associate Chaplain for Catholic Life at Elon University. Father Peter discusses his belief in the meanings behind the stories of the New Testament. So let's speak with Father Peter from Elon University. I'll just take my uh, yeah yeah my capuche off. It'll be all right. It's called a cap- capuche. Yeah, that's where the name cappuccino comes from. No, the, there's one group of Franciscans who have a really long hood. They're called the Capuchins. And they wear a brown habit, and the drink was named after them in Italy. The cappuccino is named after the Capuchin Franciscans because they have long capuchas. That's funny. That's probably why you asked for coffee. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could be one of the reasons, but I, but I generally like coffee anyway. I was drinking it before I was a friar. So what is your role? My role formally is no more complicated than to to care for the religious and spiritual life of the Catholic community at Elon University. I'm not comfortable just leaving it at, at the bare minimum when it comes to doing ministry. I strive, along with my staff of three others, we strive to get as involved in the life of students as they want us to be and to care for them in whatever way the students ask or, or, or respond. Is there a, a belief that you work by that when you're conducting ministry or got you to where you are? And I'm tr- purposely trying to make this loose because I want you to talk about what you want to talk about. There's a few things that I constantly bring with me. Think of a, a carpenter going to work with that tool belt on. Mm-hmm. With a hammer hanging off one side and a pouch with nails and and a level, uh, all, all the essential tools. I feel as if when I go into ministry, there are stories that are so full of meaning that these are the tools that I bring with me when I interact with people. What do you mean by tools? The stories, the meanings behind the stories, the deep significance are what set the priorities for how I interact with people. They become the tools by which I'm going to work by, live by. These stories determine everything in why I do what I do, the the, the life of sacrifice that I've chosen. Do you mean the stories from the Bible or just different stories? Yeah, thank you for clarifying. Yes, the stories from okay. the Bible. Yeah, yeah. But I, 
The reason I am intentionally ambiguous about that is because you can't mention the word Bible or scripture in an American context, particularly in the uh, buckle of the Bible belt where we are down here in the southeast of the United States, without all of a sudden those words, those concepts being flooded with meaning by the listener, you or whoever is listening to us, that I usually don't intend. Well, I try to keep an open mind on the show. So what do you mean when you say stories or scripture or Bible, when you're thinking about it, how are you thinking about it? The more that I've studied the New Testament or the overall Bible, the the, the Christian Bible, that is, I say that because I work with, uh, I have a wonderful working relationship with the Jewish community on campus, and, and I'm always careful to, to differentiate between the two. There's a vibrancy and a reality to the world of first century Palestine that the New Testament comes out of. The more that I study, the more I worry that we have lost an understanding and appreciation of the depth, the dynamism, the power, the cultural reality, the the political tensions, the intrigue, and the uh, revolutionary nature of what was going on. We so thoroughly domesticated the Bible and turned it into little less than an instruction manual, more or less that it's virtually become useless to a lot of people, even a lot of people of deep faith. Are you saying that the Bible often doesn't ring true for people because they're not reading it in its context or they're not using the passages as they were likely intended? I think all of the above. If we actually get into the stories of the Gospels, Mm -hmm. the world that St. Paul was wrestling with and and all of the letters that he was writing, why, to whom, what was he dealing with? If you get into that world and you allow these texts to speak on their own from the first century Palestine, not the 21st century North America, it's a totally different thing. There's a vibrancy, there's a reality, there is a three-dimensionality to the text because now you allow it to be political. You allow it to be cultural. You allow it to be sociological. You allow, there's, there's certainly a moral aspect to it. There's a religious aspect. There's doctrine that's thrown in. It's the full human experience. But the moment you take it out of the context, as you said a moment ago, and you read it as a lot of our Christian brothers and sisters do, um, when you seek to read it literally, which is sometimes meaning I'm going to read it as if it was written yesterday for me today. If you read it as if it's a document written by and for the 21st century, uh, post-enlightenment, postmodern North American world, it, it becomes less than one dimensional and it becomes little more than an instruction manual where you're picking out passages that directly address the questions that you've asked, not the issues that it wants to address. What do the stories tell us? I think they tell us of a profound, world-changing person. I'm speaking now specifically of the New Testament. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter from this backwoods town in northern Israel, had either delusion, ridiculous delusions of grandeur and was psychotically certifiable, or he was what he said he was. 
And so as Christians, we say, well, he was what he said he was. But when you actually get into his world and you understand the culture, the politics, the society, then all of a sudden that whole picture fills out. And he quite literally was on a mission to change the way in which humans were in a relationship with God, but particularly the way that humans lived in this world. Are you saying that the Bible should be read in terms of a person who was ahead of his time and did great things and tried to make great changes for the world, or the Bible should be read as someone who was God and who tried to change the world? I'm trying to understand. Yeah. You're saying stories and you're saying that Jesus can be seen different ways. Right. I think the categories that you just offered are enlightenment categories for understanding ancient texts. Mm. And if we understand the enlightenment comes 15, 16, 1700 years after mm -hmm. Jesus, then obviously there's a, we're, we're doing a little bit of disservice to the text itself. We're doing a little bit of violence to it by, by imposing our categories onto it and saying, okay, we're going to shoehorn this into our way of understanding. And that's, that's precisely the issue. What is the Bible lending us that we would be unable to attain from other ancient texts from, say, Islam or Hindu religions or things like that? I appreciate the question because, honestly, I've never been asked that question before. And the first idea that comes to my mind is the phrase that Jesus would have used to answer the question is the kingdom of God. It's an entirely new way of understanding two things, authority, power and authority, and how this world is supposed to work. And that is interpreted and understood by Jesus's death on the cross. So the power of the Bible is the relationship it discusses between people and power and authority. And those topics or those discussion points aren't dealt with as well in other ancient texts. Is that correct? I think they're certainly addressed. I, 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 my understanding of Islam is that these topics, the comprehensive human experience are dealt with, mm -hmm. but I don't get the impression that it's the same vision of what divine authority uh, servant leadership of self-sacrificial, loving, giving of yourself as a new way of running the world. Uh, I don't get the impression that it's of the exact same way. How important is truth to you? The importance of truth, it's a little bit much for me to sit here and, and, and give you a soundbite as to how important it is because we live, again, in a postmodern world where uh, truth seems to be diluted or dissolved in some sense. And so we'd have to get into a philosophical conversation to define truth. But I will say this. I think truth is very, very important, but I'm not convinced that truth is something that can only be encountered in a laboratory as your enlightenment philosophers would uh, uh, insist. As a lot of people today would insist that you know science and math are the only access to truth. I do think that truth 
is essential, but fundamentally, when confronted with the question of truth, Jesus did not say, I have the truth, as if it were a philosophical system or a set of propositions. He said, I am the well, truth. I, when I'm talking about truth, I'm talking about how you think about truth. And it's a question I ask everyone, or most people, for some people wanting to know what is true, meaning what is real, what is factually correct, is more important. And for some people, it's not as important. Right. And, and when I'm asking how important is truth to you, my question really isn't more than that, I think. Very important. Very important. Truth is essential for me personally. Truth is essential, and I believe that what Scripture gives to us is truth. When you're making the statement that what the Scripture gives to us is truth, how do you go about finding out whether that, in fact, is true? We live in an era of tremendous blessings when it comes to historical research, archaeological work, and there are a lot of resources out there as composed to 200 years ago when contemporary scripture scholarship began. We now live in an era where there's inc such incredible resources and access to information. There's a lot that's out there that verifies the historicity of much of these stories that we are going to read in the New Testament. So the way you know that your faith and your belief in scripture is true is the archaeological evidence of the stories that you discuss. That's one of the sides to it. I think the other side is the example of the people who first told these stories. Usually when you have a, a religious movement, a cultural movement, a social movement, a political movement, the group of characters that begin that movement aren't the ragtag bunch of fishermen and... Uh, small town folk that the apostles were. So there's no religious movement that begins, save for Christianity that I'm aware of anyway, that begins with such spectacular failure. So Christianity tells the story of itself from the perspective of the apostles as this ragtag bunch of ignoramuses who at every step of the way get it wrong. And yet they're the ones that that their life is radically changed, not with the cross, not with Easter Sunday morning, but we would tell the story with Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. And they go forward living differently, uh, both in relationship to power, in relationship to money, in relationship to community, in relationship to family, which was the center of the Jewish life, and willingly die for what they believe in. Generally speaking, if you come across information that comes from an underserved group yes. or a ragtag group, what does that say about the truth value of what that underserved group says, generally speaking? When the so, for example, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking about the Bible. If information comes from any underserved group right. in I'm thinking immediately of Black Lives Matter. Sure. So my approach is this. Uh, I think of one of the announcements of 
the angels at Jesus' birth. And this is quoting the Old Testament. The Lord has come to bring glad tidings to the poor and release from those who are held captive. One of the central themes of the Old Testament is this mantra that our ancestors in faith developed. And they kept telling themselves, remember that you once were slaves in Egypt. Whenever I hear the testimony of the poor, the underserved, the underprivileged, the oppressed, those who suffer injustice, I always hear it in that lens. And I always begin with the assertion that it's credible. Does the class of a person automatically speak to the truth value of what that person says? I think it might depend on what we're talking about. If we're talking about issues of justice and issues of righteousness, uh, issues of power, lack thereof, uh, issues of... Just generally speaking, if an underserved group professes a belief in a certain God or a certain text, does that make that God or that text more likely to be true? I'm not sure. Because I would say in telling the story of Christianity that the characters and the personalities and the the backgrounds of the people who continued the movement of Jesus and even Jesus himself lend credibility to the incredulous. But I at the same time believe that he is the full and final revelation of who God is, that after him, there is no more revelation. So if another group were to come along and say something, I would then step back, regardless of the socioeconomic, regardless of the background, I would be hesitant to believe because I've come to believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ. So you're telling me that you would believe in the salvation of Jesus Christ, regardless of the derivation of the stories, whether the the class issues or things like that. So that's something that you'd believe in regardless. In fairness, I think I do. Yeah. If you believe in the revelation of Jesus Christ, then presumably there is a foremost reason in your mind that you do, I would think? Yes. I I don't even know if I would say there's a foremost reason. I I would say there's faith. Because as much as I've wrestled with the whole question of... And and what do we mean by faith? (sighs) St. Paul says, faith is the assurance of that which is unseen. So faith is... Assuring yourself in something that is unseen. Yeah, faith is a, is a profound conviction of that which I cannot prove. If something is unseen and something is not proved, how do you know that it is real? This sounds like circular reasoning because my response then becomes it's something in which I believe. That isn't to say that it's an anti-intellectual conviction, that that I've come to belief in opposition to or in absentia of reason, uh, of thinking, of, of good logic, of archaeology, of, of, of some significant reflection. In fact, the more that I do those intellectual things, the academic work, the historical work, the, the uh, literary analysis of ancient texts, scripture, 
the more I come to believe what I believed before and the more that I find it to be valid. Are you saying that you could come across archaeological evidence or written evidence or otherwise that would change your belief in a 180 degree direction in that you believe the revelation of Jesus and then some information would come along and then you would not? I'd like to be able to intellectually say to you that if I were confronted with evidence that my faith was erroneous, that I would be open to that evidence. What kind of evidence would that look like? The first thing that came to my mind is if the, the, if they found a tomb of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter, with his body still in it, or if somehow the resurrection from the dead could be definitively disproven. So two things. So if someone could find an actual... If you found a tomb uh, with, with his body or remains in it. I mean, I've been to the old city, you know, the church where Jesus... Yes, as yeah, a body. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And presumably us. The tomb is there, but historically the shrine itself is very much certain that it's the real place, both of the crucifixion and the burial. The tomb has always been thought of as empty. There's, there's absolutely no evidence that there was ever remains that rotted in that tomb. If someone discovered a room next to that room and they found a tomb that said Jesus of Nazareth and there were actual physical remains mm-hmm. in that box, yeah. you would say, I don't believe this anymore. If, if it was definitively proven that Jesus did not rise from the dead, as St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if there is no resurrection from the dead, your faith is in vain. So if somebody found human remains of Jesus... If someone found human remains of Jesus, I stopped being a Christian. Yes. Because the vows that I've taken as a religious... The vows that I've taken as a disciple of Christ, all of the values that I've proposed to follow are based on this singular evidence that he's worth following. That is that he rose from the dead. Uh, A man who, who gets himself in trouble with the Roman Empire and ends up on the cross because he claimed to be some kind of unusual Messiah figure or king isn't all that exceptional, exceptional, uh, a couple, a generation before Jesus, a generation after Jesus and two generations after Jesus, people tried to do the same thing and they met the exact same fate. But Jesus, I believe rose from the dead. Therefore what he said and did is credible. Now, if you disprove his resurrection from the dead, then he's not credible. You use the word disprove. Correct. Is it possible to disprove any event in the sense that I can disprove that any event did not happen. Is that possible to do? It's not possible to disprove a negative, but it is possible to disprove a positive. So I can prove to you that <laughs> my, my, my football team is the Buffalo Bills I grew up outside. I can prove to you that the Buffalo Bills lost the Super Bowl four times in a row in the early 1990s. I can prove that. That's a matter of historical record. I can also disprove that the Buffalo Bills have ever won the Super Bowl. When it comes to the question of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, 
we can have a whole conversation hours long, but I think that that's the statement of a positive, not a negative. And so I think we can actually have both a philosophical, a, 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 um, a textual and an archaeological conversation, all of which I think there is convincing evidence that in fact, what is absurd to the rational mind uh, to the to the uh, I sh- I'll say the Enlightenment rational mind, the philosophically uh, Enlightenment period way of thinking, what's illogical to that actually happened that somebody really did rise from the dead. So you're saying that your faith is built upon Jesus rising from the dead, and if he didn't rise from the dead, that could be falsified. We could show that that wasn't true. Mm-hmm. Correct. How would that look? How would that be shown not to be true? I'm just trying to think logistically. How could someone show that? I don't know. I know that there's a lot of actually Christian scripture scholars in the late 18th and then early 19th uh, century who applying enlightenment philosophy to the study of ancient texts, to the study of scripture, began with the proposition of intellectual, intelligent people know that dead people stay dead. This was their starting point. So it's a premise. You can't, philosophical logic, you have to agree on your premises. And if you don't, you have to go a step back and argue premises. You can't, you can't have a discourse that's based on discordant premises. So when Christians at that period, and, and, and Christians even to this day, begin with this proposition of, well, modern science and modern technology has convinced us, one, that miracles don't happen. That's silly, they say. And that two, uh, dead people stay dead. So we have to find a way to argue that Jesus was uh, valid and credible and somehow get rid of the miracles and get rid of the resurrection from the dead. This is the Thomas Jefferson Bible, if you're familiar with this. Jefferson goes through the Bible and he chops it up and, and he gets rid of anything that's uh, uh, what he believes to be uh, 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 unrealistic. Supernatural. Supernatural, right. exactly. And so I think I would never say that my faith is based on miracles in the sense of there were so many Christians, they need miracles to believe. And, and they, well, we need, we need this almost God to do magic tricks. But I will say my faith is based on the conviction that there's a new divine power at work in the world that looks like the cross, but it also looks like Easter Sunday morning when God actually fixes all the problems in this world Mm -hmm. in a small way. The problem of sin, sorrow, suffering, uh, shame, guilt, and death itself. We then have to take what that was all about and go forward into the world to help Get the world ready for the day to come. And this is also what the Bible says. When what happened to Jesus on Easter Sunday morning will then trans that power will transform the world. Mm-hmm. And the world will be transformed. All the dead will be raised. Right. And this world will finally become what God had always intended. That's the meaning of Easter Sunday. Maybe it'll be easier to discuss it in this terms. Sitting next to you is Tom. And Tom believes that Buddy Holly is a literal God. Tom believes that Buddy Holly was a person, a musician, a great musician. He died and he was resurrected. What do we think about 
Tom's beliefs? First of all, do we think that Tom's belief is true? I wouldn't begin with that premise because the theological system that I'm coming from is a two-part resurrection. One, a singular event of Jesus's resurrection, followed by a general resurrection for every other human being, that it wasn't going to go uh, like a popcorn style of person to person and spread all over. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't listen or converse with Tom if Tom were to, to explain to me why. Um, what questions would we have for Tom? I would ask him why he is thinking what he's thinking. What is the, uh, what is the evidence that he would share? Uh, are, are there, are there, uh, is there anyone to have witnessed this event? Um, how would we talk about their credibility and their believability? And I would ask the question of what does it all mean? Why? The question of why. Why did Buddy Holly uh, rise from the dead? Um, was it to put out another album? Was it to just take a little vacation from the afterlife? You know, uh, was it to radically transform the cosmos as we know it? What, what was, what was, what's going on here? What's, what's, what's the full story? So you would ask him, what is your evidence? Yes. Who witnessed it? Yes. Why'd you do it? Yes. So if Tom turns around and says, my God is real, and Tom says to you, what is your evidence? Mm -hmm. Who witnessed it? Yep. And why did he do it? Why did he do it? Yeah. I'm certain you have reasons or things that you would tell him. Yes. And he believes still that Buddy Holly is a God. Mm-hmm. And you believe what you believe. Yes. Where are we then? What does that say about the truth value of either God? How can we decide what's real? How can we get to what's true? We continue our conversation with Father Peter Tremblay as he discusses his belief in the meanings behind the stories of the New Testament coming up after this short break.
What does that say about the truth value of either God? How can we decide what's real? How can we get to what's true? Presumably, you don't believe that Buddy Holly is a god. I, I don't know. I like his music, but I, but I don't. But I don't believe he's a god. Why? He never claimed to be. He never did anything that would challenge or behave as if he were a god. And the ultimate question of the resurrection from the dead has not happened. And even if Tom says it is, I would wonder what Tom could produce to verify or uh, articulate that it did or certainly why it did. So in absence of all that, I would hold that Buddy Holly is not divine. If Tom says that my God of Buddy Holly doesn't need to claim himself to be a God to be a God. Right. And that Buddy Holly is a God. He talks to me. I pray to him at night. He is changing the world for the better. I know this because I believe in Buddy Holly and I have faith in Buddy Holly. I'd like to know to get to something that is true and real. I want to know how we can figure it out. How could a third person like myself, mm -hmm. I'm seeing you and Tom discuss your God and Tom is discussing his God and I'm sitting here and I just want to know what's true and real. Right. And I want to hang my hat on something. And I think that's where I am. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very fair. Um, I don't know if in this moment I could offer any answer that that could convince is there an objective truth though there is but that doesn't mean we have easy access to it or at least that's that's how i would wrestle with the question is there access to it there is access to it but it's certainly not as neat and tidy as the scientific method, which really biases the way that we think about the question of truth, as the scientific method would have access to certain bits of information. Watching you and Tom talk, yeah, and I'm and and to use your language, I just want some access. Tom, please give me some access. Right, Father Peter, please give me some access. Access to to, and to I, truth I, to help me navigate what's true because as i 
I'm sure you're aware there's billions of people in this world and billions of people are praying to different gods and there are probably some people who are praying to no god or ha- or or don't believe in a god. Right. And as a third person, I want to know how I can come about what is true and if it's true I want to know it and I want to believe it and if it's not true I want to know that too. I want to believe in true things and I and I don't want to believe in false things. Yeah. I hope this doesn't sound like a cop out or or some sort of an abdication of a philosophical responsibility. But welcome to the human condition. I think that's something I wrestle with in all honesty on a on a regular basis. I think every human person does. I also don't have the delusion that in the way that I can prove that two plus two equals four, that I can prove these types of things. I think I can offer to you a a very, very reasoned uh, explanation for why it's credible to believe what I believe, but ultimately I can't convince if I had the capacity to convince atheists or agnostics or or believers in other faith systems that what I believe is definitively uh, true, the question is proof. If I had proof, I would have, in all charity and gentleness, I would have tried to exercise that before now. I don't have it. I don't have it. Um, Are you phrase- saying that faith is something you use until there is proof? I think faith and reason, uh, John Paul II wrote a book, Fides et Rat- uh, a text, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason. And he, he talked about these two things as the two wings of a great bird soaring into the sky, that we have to use both. That if we're relying only on one, then, you know, circle or fall out of the sky. Or uh, the image of, of true lungs filling with air and giving life to the body. I, I see as 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 somebody who believes in that image, uh, there is a balance between faith and reason. And as a Christian, you're always holding both in a relationship of complementarity and tension. Let me ask you this. What does a world where your belief isn't true look like? Would our world look the same or would it be different from a day-to-day I think it would be vastly different. I think of so much of what we consider to be good in Western civilization, hospitals, education system, orphanages, charities. In Western history, all of these things begin with Christian people of faith who are putting into practice what they believe. So you're saying without your belief in the world, people would be less good. People would do less good things, be less good to others. They'd be less moral. Partly. I don't necessarily buy into the idea that you cannot be good without God. You'll hear a lot of people, a lot of Christians sometimes saying this. Well, you, you know, you can't be good unless you believe in God. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're corrupt, you're evil, you're, you're broken. I don't believe that. But I do believe that so much of our Western tradition that is good, that we consider to be good, institutions, uh, practices, and the historical patrimony that we've received from people in the past that we cling to and say, look, this is good stuff that we have, 
the vast majority of it comes from Christian people putting into practice what they believe. So on that level, on the level of institutions and practices and systems, some of the systems in our world come from Christian people doing good things. And they explicitly talk about the reason they did good things was because of their faith. The, uh, um, the, uh, the movement for racial justice in the 60s is almost entirely motivated by people of deep, profound Christian faith who are doing it because they're Christians, who willingly embrace all of the negativity that comes because they realize this is the model, as I was talking about earlier, this is the model of the cross. It will be interesting to see in a Black Lives movement that is in some sense um, non-Christian or non-religious in, in this day and age, what that will look like. I, I don't know what the outcome will be. I certainly hope and pray that it will be successful because I think we have profound racial inequalities in our world. But I would then point to the past and yet again reiterate so much of the good that's in our world as far as um, ideas and systems and institutions that we value have come to us from people exercising their Christian faith. That doesn't mean that somehow or other without Christianity, we would be in some sort of a moral dark ages. I'm not proposing that, but I am saying there is good in the world because of Christian faith. In our country, let's say when Islamic organizations, just for an example, do good work and help people, mm -hmm. why would we say they are doing good work for people? I think the goodness is self-evident. They're doing it. It's assisting people in need. So it's a good thing to do for people. It is. Their motivation may be different than my own, but they're doing good things. So but let's not allow that, that distinction to then reduce religion to simply social service by another name. Well, I guess where I'm trying to understand is I think you're telling me Christianity as a motivation to do good things and be moral and, and the world would be different in a moral helping sort of way without the belief. And then I think I'm hearing that there are other reasons to do good things for mm -hmm. people and maybe an Islamic organization, which I'm not speaking for, sure. would do good things as well. And so if an Islamic organization or a Christian organization can do good things, what does it say about the belief that causes someone to do good things? I think it would speak to the goodness of the belief, the goodness of the people who believe. So it's the people. In, in the instances that we're discussing, yeah, I would, I would say so. Would you be, this is, and I'm not saying this is the case. Sure. But if you happen to lose your faith, do you think you'd still be a good person or as good person? Or, I mean, you seem to me like you are a very good person. Would you be different? Yes. My motivations for the way that I live would change the way that I live. So the lifestyle that I've chosen is one of incredible self-sacrifice. I'm a celibate man as an expression of and, and a requirement for my being a member of a Franciscan community, a Catholic religious order, it's, it's likewise uh, an expression of and a requirement for uh, ordained ministry in my Catholic tradition. 
if I lost my faith, the motive for that extreme self-sacrifice, because Mark, to you and to your listeners, uh, celibacy is very difficult. I'll be very, very honest about this. It's so difficult. Um, all of the self-sacrificial things that I choose every morning when I get out of bed and I choose uh, the, the the discipline of prayer, the the discipline of of giving in every way that I possibly can without uh, burning out. Would you? Be I a- would not necessarily be as dedicated to that. I would probably go out. Uh, Find somebody who shares personality traits, hopefully fall in love. You know, I, I, I think I probably would seek out a family and, and a, a much more conventional uh, way of life than the, this one of self-sacrifice. So I get that. I think how your life would definitely change if you didn't have your belief. Would you be a less moral person? I think so. That's not to offer a commentary or critique on the larger question of whether religion is necessary for morality. That's simply to admit to you, Mark, that I realize that I'm a pretty broken human being. And one of the things that helps me be better is my relationship with Jesus Christ. He inspires me. He challenges me. He he comforts me. He mentors me in the sense that I want to imitate him. But if all of a sudden he's no longer credible, well, then that goes out the window, and now I have to grope and look for someone else uh, that I might that I might imitate or or follow. That's only a commentary on my brokenness, not necessarily some some larger commentary on 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 the world or all believers in general. It doesn't seem like you're making a huge statement to say that all humans are fallible in some way. Yeah, but maybe more specifically, how do you think you would? change. And I find this very interesting. Would you, do you think you'd turn a blind eye more to people or you wouldn't be as helpful to people or, or, you know, you would be more, maybe more selfish. I mean, I'm just, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. I'm trying to understand how you'd see yourself being different. My relationship with power, money, and sex would be different. So, in being inspired by the cross of Jesus Christ and his teachings, I firmly believe that power is intended to be used as a servant, that the, the, the greatest among you should be the servant of others. So that's what power looks like as a disciple of Christ. Well, if Jesus is no longer, if that were, you know, something I would come to a conclusion to, uh, I don't see it in my foreseeable future, but then all of a sudden, well, then, there's nothing to get in the way of pursuits of importance. And I could strive for some sort of significance or business success or, you know, any, any other type of avenues where, where I might look for uh, the worldly understanding of, of power. Same thing with money. So as a Franciscan, I take a vow of poverty. That doesn't mean I'm destitute and living on the street. It means I claim none of my possessions as my own. So whatever monies I have, our, our religious community share in total. And whatever we no longer need at the end of the month, we give away. So if I were no longer a disciple of Jesus Christ, and again, this is very particular to just me. This is my own personal story. Well, then there's nothing that would prohibit me from trying to go out and make, make a million dollars or, 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 or to find uh, financial success. Same thing with, uh, with sex. Um, 
that in imitating Jesus and following the call that I feel he's given to my life, that's something that I've willingly sacrificed. Well, if that were to somehow change, then there's, there's, to my mind, there's no reason that I would uh, continue that. If we were to come up with a second best reason to go on acting in the pro-social positive way that you are, what would be a, like a second best reason we could come up with? Like why someone would act in a positive way or work at a food pantry every weekend or help the homeless, you name it. Yes. I'm trying to think of what is a second best reason someone would do something like that. The only word that comes to my mind is uh, altruism. And as I was listening to you, I was trying to think to myself of how many people I could name who I'm aware of that are motivated by a type of self-sacrificial altruism because I think all altruism is self-sacrificial, that isn't somehow connected with religious faith. There's a few names, but it's, and maybe this is just my own ignorance. There are a few names, but but I, I, I can't come up with a very involved list. So it's something about your faith that makes people more altruistic. I do think that's one of the better byproducts of faith. It reorients values. It reorients goals it reorients a vision for the future and when you re-envision what the future looks like then you're going to act in the present potentially you're going to act in the present differently so let's say sitting next to you is charles and charles has let's say no faith let's say charles is an atheist and charles by all accounts is a good person and he helps people and he gives a good percentage of his money away to charities if we had a whole society of Charleses, would we still be missing something? Or are you telling me that Charleses don't exist in that sense? I don't know. Human nature is such a funny thing. In all, in all humble honesty, I, I, I don't know. Um, I've got a lot of thoughts going through my head. I remember Pope Francis a number of years ago getting in a lot of trouble with very, very uh, um, traditional Catholics, a lot of people in the United States, especially when he spoke glowingly of atheists. And Pope Francis said, uh, we need to admire and partner with atheists who are convinced of the urgency of looking after our climate, looking after our planet, because they understand better than most the urgency and the necessity to protect this precious reality. And so they're not opponents of ours in this effort. We must work with them. Um, so he he saw the good in those who were of different faith and 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 uh, of no faith even. And so I was inspired by that, and I and I agree with him. But I'm still incredulous about the brokenness of human nature, primarily because I'm aware of my own. Uh, and 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 maybe this is just a narcissistic projection, right? You know, oh, the whole world is as broken as I am. I could be very wrong about that. My experience tells me otherwise. Um, I think we're all broken. And so if we could get to a utopia of a society of uh, people modeled after Charles, that would be that would be incredible. Um, I'm just not convinced that that could ever happen. So a whole society of Charles's would be fine and could work. It's just getting to that place is what would be difficult. 
I'd say impossible. I don't know if humans are made of that stuff. We're animals that evolved in an environment where tribes of fewer than 150 people for tens of thousands of years would fight and scrape for the bare minimum of resources to survive that was available, uh, all the while waging constant violent struggles with other bands of tribes of humans of 150 or fewer people. You know, the, 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 the tribalism and the, the violence that's written into our neurology and our evolutionary history, even if you go deeper into the, to the brain, into the reptilian mind of the, uh, of the most fundamental urges of freeze, fight, or flight, there, there's, there's something about our human nature that is not altruistic except to people of our own tribe. And so to then take a tribal mentality and somehow project that onto a global mentality, that's the project set a different way of the kingdom of God that Jesus was trying to do, but we have found very little success. A big reason why I do this show, at least a reason that I tell myself, is that we seem to be living in a time where we have large portions of society, our culture, who believe wildly different things or wildly opposing things. The beliefs are very different. And it seems at our present moment in our country that it's getting us into trouble that we are at some sort of tipping point. Okay. Would you disagree with that or agree with that? I think we're in trouble. I'm not sure yet if we're at a tipping point. I'm always, I always try to be a little bit sober about things because I, I worry that uh, um, we can be a little bit self-aggrandizing, but we're definitely in a moment that's very, very different from any moment that I think you or I would have really experienced in our lifetime, assuming that uh, we're somewhat similar in age. This is a very different moment than what's come before we're very divided, but I'm not entirely certain we're at, at a tipping point just yet. From the WHUP studios in downtown Hillsboro, North Carolina, I'm Mark Solomon, and you've just listened to another episode of Being Reasonable. Questions? Thoughts? Connect with us at beingreasonableshow.com. See you next week.
enjoy funk. Silence is not an option. I've got you. 